Our scripture passage for this evening is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Hear now the word of God. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this evening. Let's pray together. Lord our God, we ask you to press us, to challenge us, and to search out our hearts. Help us to live a life that is carefully examined according to your word. Send your spirit of correction, always reminding us that nothing good can happen in us without your son, Jesus Christ, who is all in all to us as your people. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Peter has sort of run the gamut when, in terms of talking about suffering in his book. Uh, there's the suffering that comes just from living in this fallen world. Uh, there's the suffering that is connected very intimately with persecution, which has really been the undercurrent of most of the book. But tonight, Peter turns his attention to another kind of suffering that isn't always as obvious. It isn't always the kind of suffering you think of when you think of suffering. But it's the suffering that comes from not following your passions. Um, Scripture spells out for us the truth that if we are Christians, we are going to experience inner conflict. That's part of what it means to be a Christian in this fallen world with these fallen hearts and bodies and souls. There's probably no passage in Scripture that lays out that inner conflict that the Christian has, I think, than Romans chapter 7 because... Paul explains the wrestling that happens in our hearts very well. Here's what he says, at least in part. He says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And Paul goes on even more To say that Christ Jesus has done something to help us win that battle of inner wrestling that we experience. But Peter tonight turns a light on this type of suffering. The suffering of, I think you could say, self-denial. And the suffering that comes when we just live as Christians. And when that happens, we get pushback, not only from our own hearts, but from those in the watching world around us. 
Um, especially when we don't join them, when we don't join the party, as it were. See, remember, this is a letter that's written to oppressed Christians. They're living in a difficult context. They're living in a time of, of suffering. They're living in a time of persecution, potentially. And we see that here tonight, as Peter offers three encouragements. And here are Peter's three encouragements for his readers and for us as well. He says this, don't live for yourself, don't be surprised, and don't be discouraged. Don't live for yourself, don't be surprised, and don't be discouraged. Uh, There's discouraging news in this. There's negativity here. There's challenge. But the good news in all of this is that Peter doesn't leave us helpless, and he doesn't leave us hopeless. But he immediately begins by setting our eyes on Jesus, who has been through all of this before we ever were. He has suffered before any of us even existed. So let's see the encouragement Peter has for us. First, Peter says, don't live for yourself. So the way Peter makes this argument is he, he points at Jesus and he says, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So before we get to the core claim of this first point, just see how he does this. He says, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. So what he means is this. He says, the reason Jesus was able to endure suffering was because he knew how to think about it. Now, is that the whole reason that Jesus was able to endure suffering? No, I don't think Peter's saying that's the whole reason. But he says he knew what his attitude towards suffering should be, and so do we. We need, to be, we need to have the same attitude. So the question is, what is Jesus' attitude? Well, it's in verse 2. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So think about this. Peter is telling us that when life doesn't go our way, when suffering happens, if we have the attitude of Jesus who prepared himself to suffer, that suffering has a way of weaning us off of this world so that that we love it less and so that we love our lives less. Think of those words at the end of the book of Revelation. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Those are the words of someone who has stopped loving the world. Those are the words of someone who has been weaned off of this world and loving this life. This is a person whose priorities have changed. He says that suffering changes us. It changes us so that we no longer live for human passions. That's what Peter says here. The question is, what are the human passions Peter's talking about? You know, if we talk about passions, if we talk about passion, we, I think we find a lot that resonates around us, right? We live in a passionate age. People are passionate about politics. People are passionate about movies. They're passionate about relationships. They're passionate about hobbies. They're passionate about things. But to be passionate about something isn't the same thing as passions the way Peter mentions them here. Because 
In this passage, when Peter talks about passions, he's talking about the sort of urges that rise up from the basest, worst parts of ourselves. Those thoughts, those feelings that we barely feel like we have any control over. And he's really telling us here that Jesus lived in such a way that he wasn't guided by human passions. And Peter is telling us that our suffering has a way of drawing us away from that too. Self-denial is a type of suffering. It's saying no to ourselves. I think of all the phrases that represent our age best, you could probably think of a few, but the one that comes most to mind for me is Burger King's motto, have it your way. Um, Because I think have it your way is the most modern Western American phrase that I could possibly think of. It represents the day and the time we live in like no other phrase. Now, don't get me wrong. Burger King are not exactly philosophers, okay? Um, if you've seen their, their mascot, you know that. But uh, they just want us to have a burger. That's all they want for us. But that phrase, have it your way, doesn't it perfectly encapsulate the, way we, the world we live in right now? Doesn't it perfectly encapsulate the way that people think this phrase, have it your way, it's the opposite of suffering? It's the flip of what Peter is saying here because because God is saying, actually, don't have it your way. He's actually saying that part of being a godly person is not having life your way. And, And Peter is really saying that Jesus had an attitude that life shouldn't go his way and life wouldn't go his way. And Peter says, arm yourself with that way of thinking. Peter says, Christian, if you're going to say no to your human passions, you're going to have to live like Jesus and reject that way of thinking. Expect that life is going to have this uphill element to it. One time I was talking to a friend. He was not a mature Christian. He'd been a Christian for a very short period of time. He said, I just wonder when it's supposed to start getting easy. You know, and I I thought, well, I don't know. Maybe it never does. And. I think as we read Peter here, the answer is the Christian life doesn't get easy. The Christian life doesn't get simple. That's not easy, right? An uphill life is not easy. And yet our age is sort of guided by feelings and urges in the extreme. This belief, this presumption that things should get easy, that things should be easy, that there should become a time when when, uh, things slow down. Like drinking sweet tea on the front porch. You know, when is the Christian life going to get like that? And yet, it seems that's not the case for us. It seems that what Peter's saying here is there is no easy time. There is no moment where the Christian life suddenly becomes coasting or downhill. And that's not an easy message for people to hear. People don't want to hear that message because our age is guided by feelings and urges in the extreme. Think about this. Um, In America today, 2019, I'm sure it'll be the case in 2020, if you have an urge, if you have a desire, not only is that desire seen as legitimate with very few exceptions, very few exceptions, you can list on one hand the number of desires that are seen as illegitimate in our own day and age. If you have an urge... 
If you have a desire, it is not only seen as legitimate, but it is so closely wed to who you are that it becomes who you are. And so to to say no to something that's wrong is interpreted as hatred of somebody. And it doesn't have to be anything specific. There are lots of things that people take as their strongest desire and they let it define them and become who they are. And so the opposite of that is what Peter is saying, which is self-control. Because the message that self-control is important or even a virtue at all is seen as madness in a society that is obsessed with self-determination, feelings, sentiments, and desires. And that is our entire age in a nutshell, which means that everything about what Peter is saying here is uphill. And see, Peter doesn't actually set our eyes just on self-control or just saying no to our passions. He says, he's not saying just no. He's not saying the Christian life is all about saying no. He actually says there is a positive alternative. There is a direction that our souls are meant to point. And he says the opposite of following your passions is not to have no feelings. He says it's for you to live the rest of your life For the will of God. So in other words, loving the right things. Not staying away from everything. Loving the right things. So he says the same consuming passion that drove Jesus is the thing that should drive us. And the question is, what drove Jesus? The answer is, he loved the will of God. He loved the will of God. One of my favorite places is in... John 4, 32, Jesus' followers, they come to him. He's been waiting by the well, talking to the woman from Samaria. They went to go get food. And then they come back with food and they say, ah, here we are. We've brought you food now. And they say, Jesus, you should eat something. And then Jesus says, I have food that you do not know about. So his disciples say to one another, has anybody brought him food to eat? And Jesus said to him, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So what is the thing that Jesus says fulfills him more than anything else? He says it's not a good meal and a good meal is great. But he says it's not food. It's not physical food. It's not anything like that. He says the thing that fills me up, the thing that gives me more meaning, more joy, more purpose is the will of God. And Peter says, arm yourself with this way of thinking. What's your food? What's the most important thing to you each day when you get up? What is the thing you start searching around for and orienting your day around? He says, if you're going to survive, you need this attitude. He says, arm yourself with that way of thinking. Think this way. Believe this way. Take it up like a sword. Wield it like a weapon. Lord, there is nothing in this life that satisfies me like your word. If you're going to live the uphill Christian life, the way that it's laid out for us in Scripture, you have to every day rise up and get ready for battle. Because it never gets easy. It's never sitting on the porch with sweet tea. The question is, how can you do that? How, how can we, in practice, become the kind of people who love this way and live this way? Well, there are a lot of strategies I could point to, but I would just say this. Surround yourselves with the examples of people like that. The sort of people who say, my life is about warfare. 
not physical warfare, but spiritual warfare. The sort of people who love God's law and lift it up and exhort one another with it. Uh, Do this practically. Meditate on the Psalms, especially the Psalms that talk about the law of God and how precious it is. Read through Psalm 119. Yes, it's the longest psalm. Read through Psalm 119. It is a psalm that is all about how wonderful and perfect and beautiful the law of God is. Arm yourself. Peter says. There are other strategies, of course, for self-denial, but Peter says, don't live for yourself. Instead, live for the will of God. And that means being exposed to the will of God. Second this evening, Peter says, don't be surprised. And don't be surprised about what? Well, we get to that in a moment, but he says in verse 3 that, that having Christ's attitude has consequences because he says... Gentiles do all sorts of things that aren't suitable for Christians. And then he lists off things that aren't suitable for Christians. And they're really uncomfortable to read out loud when there are children in the room, right? Sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. You don't want your kids to ask you what those words mean. And he says, and then he says, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. So the idea here from Peter is that being a Christian does mean saying no to some things. There are things as a Christian you must say no to. Surely there are things that non-Christians do that are just not acceptable for us as Christians Here's the question I would just start with. Do you draw the line ever? Are, there, are you so permissive that there is no line whatsoever? Now, Christians don't want to be known just for what we say no to. Of course not. I, if you look at the Ten Commandments, there are more to the Ten Commandments than just prohibitions. There is more to the commandments than just God saying, no, 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 don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. But there is a whole world of good that we're saying yes to in the Ten Commandments. But that does not mean that therefore we never say no to things that we know are forbidden to us. I think sometimes we're so careful to not be that kind of Christian. We want to sort of push against the stereotypes that we we are so set on not being that kind of Christian that we end up not being any kind of Christian at all. That could be one possibility of the way that we end up going. We overcorrect. We say, I want him to know I'm not a legalist, so I'll do anything. But see, God sets his expectation on us. He has put his law not only in his word, but he's put it in our hearts. And he's given us a conscience that we have to obey. And the result is that we are people who just don't do what the world does. And boy, it surprises them. And as a result of us saying no, our refusing to participate, Peter says, we stand out. We stand out. They are surprised that you say no. And what does Peter say? He says, and they malign you. Malign just means talk bad about you. They, they trash talk you. He's writing to Christians who in the present are being spoken evil of because they refuse to do Evil. They refuse to join in. They refuse to approve of things that God forbids. 
Um, I have started witnessing this pretty recently. I know it's been going on for a long time, but, but I've recently noticed it. The, uh, the Methodist Church, the United Methodist Church in the United States uh, and around the world has been experiencing a lot of tumult because the church was divided between people who advocated for full acceptance of lesbian, gay, transgendered pastors and those who stood on the biblical side who said, no, this is not acceptable. And I remember uh, somebody uh, in this church had been to a Methodist church and they brought me the newsletter from the church. And I was sort of looking through it. And the pastor of that church, uh, you could tell the pastor was a theological liberal and they supported LGBT transformation of the church. And I noticed this phrase that the pastor kept using in the, in the newsletter, they kept calling the Orthodox Christians who defended the biblical view of human sexuality, they kept calling them moralists. And over and over again, I noticed this, this word moralist being used in this newsletter article. And it, it was clearly a distasteful term. It was, it was clearly a way of maligning these Christians. Like Peter says, the world will do when we don't join them. They were maligning these people. And then I thought, well, this is just a one-time thing. And then earlier this year, I was grading a paper by a student at Bellhaven. And the student was using the exact same phrase to describe people with a biblical view of human sexuality. And he used this phrase, moralists. And you know, people in the Methodist church are probably used to this phrase by now. But immediately I realized, oh, someone has decided to use this word and it is catching on and they're using it to do what Peter says here to malign them to speak badly of them to trash talk them if you want to use uh, younger slang Uh, but I just noticed this this word moralist it's a dirty word it's a filthy word I hate it I I speak against moralism from the pulpit there is nothing that solves our problems just by speaking moralism moralism is all about changing our behavior and not getting at the heart of the matter someone who's focused on behavior but not the heart and so the secular world mocks us and they malign us that's the word that Peter uses They'll speak badly of us. They'll call us hateful, whatever the word of the day is. But, but the people trying to transform Christianity into something new always have their ways of maligning Christians who refuse to join their crowd too. And Peter says, we shouldn't be shocked. It shouldn't shock us. This is the way that the world operates. Finally, third this evening, Peter says, don't be discouraged. In verse 6, Peter says, For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now, uh, that verse has a uh, number of puzzles in it, and I just want to move step by step through it to sort of unravel things. But see, first, Peter says the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. All Peter is saying is that there were people who heard the gospel and then they died. If you look in the book of Galatians, Paul says that Abraham heard the gospel. And then what happened to Abraham? He died. And that's what Peter's talking about here. People who knew the gospel and yet they died. And let's leave aside that phrase, though, for the moment and focus on the real meat of what Peter says. He says, this is why the gospel was preached, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit 
the way God does. So there's that phrase in the middle that I think might trip us up. It says that though judged in the flesh the way people are. And there are are so many odd sentence fragments here. But that phrase just means that you know how unbelieving people are. They judge you. You know how unbelievers are. They're judgmental. Um, Just like Peter mentioned in the last section, they do tend to be judgmental. Uh, They do tend to stand over us and look down on us and judge us. The issue is not that the watching world doesn't have morality. It's just that they're excessively permissive. Um, Many of you saw this this video of a man outside of a Planned Parenthood clinic, and there was an elderly woman quietly pacing on the sidewalk, praying, willing to talk to any girls that might need to go into the clinic, thinking about getting an abortion. And this man stood on the sidewalk. She didn't even have a sign. She didn't have anything. She was just dressed in street clothes. And this man followed her for eight minutes and screamed things at her, yelled at her, shame on you. What you're doing is disgusting. This is wrong. You have no business being out here. Disgusting. Shame on you. Shame on you. Disgusting. He probably said both of those words a hundred times each. He said, shame on you for shaming other people. You keep shaming these women. Uh, And all she wanted to do was counsel them. totally oblivious to the contradiction of shaming someone for doing what she was doing. And so he shames the woman because he says she shames them, just completely without an ounce of self-understanding or self-awareness. And he was apparently a Pennsylvania state representative. And he kept yelling at the woman because he said she thinks she knows what's right. That's what he said. He said, I'm doing this because you think you know what is right. And so what does he do? He judges her judgment. And here he is. He's this deeply moral person with his own moral compass, very much active. But his moral compass isn't guided by the word of God, not even guided by natural law or reason. Peter acknowledges here, secular people may be more permissive morally than Christians are, but they are quite, quite judgmental. And unlike Christians, they have no notion or doctrine of forgiveness. There is no forgiveness if you cross the secular mob. So the the bullying, the anger, the emotions, the passions, all of them come to a head in the judgmentalism of the age that we live in. You see, secular people today have sort of deluded themselves into thinking that they are moral pioneers who are going where no one has ever been before. But Peter is used to this kind of person in the first century. They were even around in the first century. You see, there's nothing new under the sun. What's the alternative? Well, Peter says, even if the watching world judges us, as the world often tends to do, he says, there's a way out. He says, don't be discouraged. Not because there isn't trouble going on around us, but because we've heard the gospel. And that means we get to live in the spirit the way God does. Flesh versus spirit. Which will it be? This is why Peter says the gospel was preached, so we might live in the Spirit. Even if the world judges us, even if the world maligns us, rejects us, calls us names, it's why you were made, it's why you were saved, it's why Christ came, so you could have something more than just moralism. 
but so that you could have a real inward change. If you say no to sin, if you say no to human passions, you should expect to suffer. Something in you is going to fight back. If you exercise self-control, you should expect something inside of here to say no. No, have it your way. And you'll suffer not only internally in your own heart, in your own wrestling, but you'll suffer in the eyes of the world as well. They won't respect you. But he also reminds us of this. He says, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The judgment is coming, and it's an an objective truth. It doesn't matter if they believe that it exists or not. It does matter because they need to know it, but objectively it doesn't change anything. Their desire to not be judged won't change whether they're judged. The world can tell itself as much as they want. There's no judgment coming. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die And yet the reality is our passions will only get us so far. Wish fulfillment will only get the crowd so far. But they can't change reality. And the reality is a judgment is coming. And when that happens, the whole world will know the truth. They will know that the things you have been saying no to were forbidden. And they'll be judged for it. But I want you to see this, and this is very important because if we, don't, if we don't end where we began, then we will be moralists preaching a code of morality but not salvation. Because think about where this all began. Where did Peter hang everything on in verse 1? At the very beginning. It's Jesus. It's Jesus himself. Why can we do this? Why can we live the uphill Christian life? Because, he says, Christ suffered in the flesh because he loved the will of God. And so now the call is clear. We need to arm ourselves. His consuming passion has to become our consuming passion. Love the will of God. Let's pray. Lord, you've written your word this evening to people like us who do often feel like we're on the outside of the world. Things are going on. The people of this world are doing their own thing and they do judge us because there are lines you've drawn that we won't cross. There are things they'll do that they can't understand why we won't go there. And so would you help us to hold the line and be faithful? Would you keep us faithful? Would you keep us bold? Would you protect us from discouragement? But most importantly of all, would you set our eyes on the Savior who loved us, who rescued us, who gives us the only verdict that actually matters? It's in his name that we pray. Amen.